I know I've been on vacation. That was a little bit of a backhanded compliment. Did you all notice that? Preached in a way that he hasn't preached in a while. Because me in the past year, the past five years. Thank you, brother, for your prayers. Next time, I'll ask John Scott to pray before I preach. You all know this word, um, and where this sermon begins is not where it's going to end. It's going to end rooted in the gospel, but let's go by circuitous path this morning. You all know this word, affluence, affluence. Um, I, uh, it was popular in vogue maybe a decade ago, um, accusing Americans of even having affluenza, that preoccupation with consumerism and acquisition and getting more and making more and earning more. Affluence, defined as a plentiful supply of material goods, defined as a great quantity, abundance, abundance of money, wealth. And I want to offer a thought to you this morning, not that this is, uh, uh, it might speak to every heart in here, but it may speak to many of our hearts, and it speaks to mine, um, that there is sometimes the mistaken notion, known unconsciously, perhaps, but not consciously, that affluence is, if you will, the elixir of life. The secret of life's fullness, in other words. The more I have, the happier I will be. The more I have, the more independent and less reliant, re less reliant I can be. The more I have, I can be what? Self-sufficient. Which is an anti-gospel state of mind that slowly slips into our lives sometimes if we are sold out on the notion of affluence. It's uh, deceptive and even more seductive than you might imagine because one could argue that anyone who lives in the United States of America is a beneficiary of affluence. Indeed, there are some who are more affluent than others, but in contrast and in comparison to what we see now virtually every night on the news, the backdrop and backgrounds of Syria or Egypt or Honduras, Central America, the backdrop to all that, in comparison, contrast to that, surely the rest of the world looks at us as affluent people. There's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs, and in the 30th chapter, there is this offered. A prayer to God, two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And look at this other interesting request. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Obviously speaks to the whole image of Jesus teaching us how to pray and in the middle of his prayer is embedded Give us this day our daily bread. But why is this wisdom author concerned? Because he says there are consequences. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? 
That's self-sufficiency, isn't it? That is complete independence from the Lord. That is relying on one's own resources because I am affluent. And affluence encourages that habit of the heart. And Proverbs speaks right to the heart of the matter. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I've been thinking again about this this summer because of what is going on in the world. A world which seems just a bit more unstable than one year ago. And wondering and thinking, well, what if sudden disaster or ruin comes upon us as a people? How far away is the chaos of the world? Are the barbarians storming the gates? And what do I do about that? Do I ignore it and pretend it's not there? Or can I leverage the events of the world that we see in the paper and on the news and on the internet? Can I leverage this new information by a reprioritizing, a reprioritizing of my life investments? My investment in affluence or my investment in the Lord? Now, I think you know the events I'm talking about. It might start as a marker event back at the beginning of the summer, the abduction of 219 schoolgirls by Boko Haram, all these new names and new words we hear that we've never heard of before. But behind all these names, it always appears to be a group bent on destruction, terrorism, creating fear, and slavery. So there it happened, 219 girls that are to this day, though no longer in the news or on the news, to this day have not been returned to their families, these families who all live in Nigeria. World events like Syria in a vicious civil war, which also tends to be a backdrop in the news now, maybe not even getting mentioned, but nothing's changed. It's as bad as ever. Hundreds of thousands who have been executed or who have died or have been bombed out of their homes and made into refugees. Or Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda, which even though we have attempted to withdraw from there as we have from Iraq, is no less, um, uh, no more stable than it was, it would appear. Or Libya, where that horrible execution of our ambassador was only a couple of short years ago, now fracturing and descending toward chaos. The air of spring seems to be long gone. I mean, this is a pretty long list that could cause anxiety and fear for any of us living here in the perceived safe, secure walls of the United States. Ebola virus trying to come to our shores in one way or another. We wonder whether it will make it into this land or not but certainly creating fear and horror for those in West Africa today. Declared now an international emergency. Israel and Hamas. Bombs being slung back and forth. A nation at war against a tribe. The Islamic State 
Never even heard of that, did we, at Christmas time, a short six or eight months ago. The Islamic State and Christians in ancient Christian cities being run out or executed by those of the Islamic State. Radical Islam bent on the destruction of the West. That's you and me, and it's our way of life. All this is simply to say something big may be coming our way. And the question I would ask you about leveraging and reprioritizing is, are you ready? I don't mean, do you have your air raid shelter ready or you're stocking your cupboards? But if you know a hurricane may come, you do things to get ready, don't you? So my question to you this morning on this lovely August summer day in which there is peace and harmony and stability as far as we know. The internet is still functioning. Facebook will still open up. The electrical grid of the United States has not been uh, sabotaged yet. Are you making yourself, though, spiritually ready for what may be thrown at you? Or is your spiritual reservoir empty from neglect? The reservoir needs to be full. What are you doing now to prepare for what may come our way? And while you're preparing, if it's not the big thing like I have described, a cultural undermining of our culture and life, maybe it's simply a particular and personal thing known to you, something unexpected that has come into your life, disease or an accident. Perhaps I'm made even more reflective about this because my sister emailed me this week to say that one of their best friends had fallen off of something. She didn't say what, had fallen and was killed in the fall and gone in the blink of an eye. And I attended a funeral of one of my football buddies and fraternity brothers from Suwannee Days on Tuesday in Auburn, who was found in his chair at his office desk on Friday evening, dead apparently from a heart attack, and a family of wife and four daughters left in profound grief. Stuff happens, doesn't it? And while stuff is not happening, are you filling your spiritual reservoir? You know, it's as simple and practical as Aesop's fable, isn't it? One of his, uh, the squirrel who works hard in the sweltering heat all summer long, building and improving his house and laying up supplies for the winter. And the grasshopper, as the story goes, who thinks the squirrel's a fool and laughs and dances and plays the summer away. And come winter, come the disaster, come the hardship, the squirrel is warm and well-fed while the grasshopper has no food or shelter, so he dies out in the cold. Let's look for a moment now at today's gospel. I want to go back before and remind you of the context of this gospel because a lot is going on. Because before today's story of walking on the water is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And before the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the story of Jesus 
trying to get some time for prayer because two significant events have happened in his life. First, he has returned to his homeland, to his own people, to teach to the people in the synagogue in Capernaum where he grew up. They disrespect him. They ignore him. They ridicule him. And Scripture says in the 57th verse, they took offense at him. So Jesus moves on, realizing that there may be a gathering storm around his own life. That is compounded and multiplied in the next event in the Matthew's Gospel of the beheading of John the Baptist. Remember, this is John, his first cousin, this is John who baptized him at the River Jordan. This is John who said once to his own followers, I must decrease in order that he may increase, as he points the finger towards his cousin, towards Jesus himself as the one to give attention to and to follow. And it's John whose head is placed on a platter. How gross can this be? Sounds like radical terrorism, doesn't it? His head placed on a platter and presented to the king's wife, Herodias. And that event and story ends, they went and told Jesus, those who had witnessed that. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He's going to refill his reservoir by spending time with the Lord by engaging the Lord, and no doubt reflecting on if that is what can happen to John the Baptist, what may inevitably happen to him as well as he speaks and stands and gives witness. And of course, he can't get away without the crowd chasing and pursuing him, and so they gather. And we heard last week of his compassion and generosity by laying aside his own agenda and feeding the 5,000 after a day of teaching them. And then we come to the events of today that we have heard. That Jesus sends his disciples on ahead. And we don't need to wonder for long why he sends them ahead. He has fed the crowd on his word and on literal food, bread and fish. And now he's back to his own personal needs and business. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, filling his reservoir in order to carry on with life. When evening came, he was there alone, the boats a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. The Markan account of this, the Gospel of Mark account of this says, as that the Disciples were straining at the oars. In other words, it's rough, it's scary, it's not that big a boat. They're loaded down. They're trying to get to the other side, which is no short distance, but a few miles over, in very, very stormy, rough waters. And they are afraid. Now, I believe this is one of the most mysterious moments in gospel story is Jesus walking on the water. 
I suppose most of us appropriate that by faith and just saying, well, if Jesus wanted to walk on water, I believe he can walk on water. But how he did that, I don't know. It wasn't the stones under the surface, was it, that he knew where to step, as one story goes, one joke goes. But what's even more amazing is that Peter asked if he can join him. And Peter says, come on. Peter got down out of the boat. Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus until he saw the wind, was distracted by the wind, and he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cries out to the Lord Jesus, Lord, save me. It worked for a moment, but it's not working now. I took my eyes off of you. And Jesus says to him as he catches him, you of little faith, you with the reservoir that is nearly empty, why did you doubt? And notice that it's not so much doubting as uh, believing in Jesus, doubting in his own ability in the power of the Spirit to do what Jesus is doing. That is to walk on water. And it's almost as if he began to do it and he was doing it. And then he, he lost the momentum of that. And uh, just in his own um, distraction with what's going the storm around him, uh, he no longer can walk on water. And Jesus simply sums it up in that way. You of little faith. So if this is a story not only of natural storms, but also of the storms of life, and how are we going to walk in peace and in power through the storms of life? Then what can we learn from this? Don't seek those storms. I understand that. Don't be the cause of those storms, perhaps in your own family system. I understand that. But be prepared for the possibility or the eventuality of the storms coming, whether it's the huge global conflict that finally begins to overtake our, our civilization and the, our times of peace, or whether it's the individual cataclysmic event in your own life. Remember the words of Jesus. John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, these things being how to believe how to live, how to understand God's provision, so that you, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says there. But take heart. Take heart, Peter. Take heart, brothers and sisters. I have overcome the world. So, brothers and sisters, I simply want to hold up in this season of new beginnings, a new school year, which is all about growth and learning and education, returning to college, returning to high school, returning to grammar school, starting at the Christian Learning Center, whatever that looks like. Um, may it also be a new season of growing education for each of us. And it is to enable us to lay aside the illusion that affluence gives us of self-sufficiency and focus instead upon the things of God. 
So what to do? Let me, may I just practically speak to that, and I will end the sermon on a practical note rather than just saying do it. Let me say something about, well, if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to let this be a new school year for me in the school of life in Christ, what do I do? Uh, it's not that you haven't heard these before, but it would require a decision on your part to recommit to these. But first, uh, Paul says it beautifully in the letter to Rome today. Um, if you confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. If you confess with your lips, speak from your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's hard for lips and a mouth to say that unless the heart embraces it as well. Or it can be seen as behavior modification. That as I say that and the more I say that, the more it becomes a truth and a reality in my own life. Jesus is Lord. There is nothing wrong. In fact, it's quite spiritually healthy to do that every day. To begin the day or end the day or during the day. Simply to say aloud. Doesn't mean anyone else has to be listening, but you are listening to yourself. Jesus is Lord. Paul says that's the beginning, that's the, the starting juncture, and you can always do that reset and restart and say, today, Jesus is Lord. And then uh, making time in your life for the things of God. Um, Rick Warren gave us this uh, purpose-driven life. Uh, we put it up on the walls years ago now, but there under those five banners um, are in invitations to personal spiritual habits, worshiping with the body. Here you are on Sunday morning. Way to go. Filling the reservoir of faith. Being in fellowship through a life group or a small group or the men's group or the Friday morning groups, but being in a small group where one can be nurtured and grow more in your faith and fill the reservoir. And ministry, back over there. Ministry is an amazing, has an amazing impact on the human heart and life for a Christian. It's, it's being not focused on oneself, but focused on others and their needs. And witness, being willing to give a reason for the hope that you have in you, doing it with gentleness and respect, as First Peter says, but a willingness to share with others the truth of God in Christ. And finally, discipleship, which is just a very intentional, focused, personal growth. Um, I would offer that in the context of committing to a daily time to open the Bible and read even a verse a day. All these daily guides available on computers now that will automatically pop up. But a chance to engage a few verses or a chapter and to say your daily prayers. And that, brothers and sisters is a common-sense, practical, simple approach to filling your reservoir of faith. And in doing that, you'll be prepared for whatever the, ro the world throws at you. And even looking at all this stuff around us that I itemized earlier, you can look at that and cry out to the Lord for resolution and repair and protection, but also be able to live in peace, God's peace, the peace that the world cannot give, that Jesus gives, the peace which passes all understanding, and the peace that enables you even to stand in the midst of conflict and speak God's truth of love. So from affluence to faith, to in, from independence to dependence, from self-sufficiency to 
Christ is my sufficiency. It's a new season, a new school year for all of us. Let's tackle it. Amen.